take the following two claims. Humans, as biological beings, are subject to unconscious mechanisms of the physical world. As moral agents, we have free will and therefore can and should be held morally accountable for our actions. With the law of non-contradiction in mind, we cannot believe both of these claims without contradicting ourselves. So what is the fate of morality after accepting that any metaphysical account of morality must also take into account a broader deterministic metaphysics? On this episode of Ethical Theory Review, Professor Brad Coquelet sits down with Dr. Pamela Hieronymi of UCLA to discuss her upcoming book, Freedom, Resentment, and the Metaphysics of Morals. The text sheds new light on the work of P.F. Strassen and has profound implications for future work on free will, moral responsibility, and meta-ethics. Ethical Theory Review is a podcast that explores contemporary work in ethics and is hosted by Brad Coquelet of the University of Kansas. to thank you for coming on the podcast for the interview and we're talking today about your book i've got to hear freedom resentment and the metaphysics of morals and the topic is pf strawson's paper on uh, free will really so i thought uh, but what you're offering in the book is a new interpretation of strawson so not everyone who's listening is going to necessarily have read the the paper or the book but I, so I thought we could, but we're not going to get into kind of a general overview of uh, the free will debate. But I thought I'd mention you do actually start the book with a nice kind of overview for, of that. So that's good to know. One of the big topics of the book is just determinism. So I guess when I teach intro to philosophy or intro to ethics, I often say, you know, imagine if you discovered that determinism was true, all your past and present and future actions were determined wouldn't that threaten moral responsibility? And I can get that to be vivid for myself. So when I think of this and I think, well, if I discovered determinism was true, I couldn't really take credit for anything, things that I thought I could take credit for. And I could, I shouldn't be blamed and same thing with other people. So it's a common thought. And so the paper, as you point out, I mean, it's, it's trying to convince us that discovering some general claim about determinism being true it wouldn't really threaten moral responsibility. So it's a kind of shocking thesis. So I thought we could sort of dig into, you know, what's it, why wouldn't the discovering the truth of determinism undermine moral responsibility? And we could sort of dig in. Um, so it's, a, yes, it's a very strong and striking claim he makes right at the beginning. It, um, it's, it's because determinism is a general thesis, because it's true of everything at all times, that he is completely confident that it won't undermine responsibility. So it's not just determinism, it's anything that's true of everything at all times would not undermine responsibility. So how, how is he going to get that idea well, to get the flavor of it, this might not be helpful to people who are... So, so one way to get the flavor of it is to, if you know of the sort of quine point about radical interpretation, so, so the thought is, imagine you were airdropped into a society and you had to learn the language from scratch. You're going to interpret it such that most of the statements are true. And so, um, so the, that was thought to show by some people that, that it's got to be the case that we're mostly right about things, right? Or Davidson on the holism of the mental. When you start attributing beliefs, desires, ment psychological states to people, you do so in a way that generally makes sense of them. Um, so Strawson is writing in a similar era and is making a similar sort of point, um, his thought is that the cases in which we stop holding someone responsible are have to be exceptional cases. They have to be exceptions. And that's because carrying on in the way that counts as being responsible 
is what he thinks of as a natural human thing to do and not something that either, this is the new interpretation, he, he, he thinks of it as not something that either could be or needs to be justified. We just, as a matter of fact, treat other people as mattering to us. We treat the quality of other people's wills as something that has a certain sort of importance to us. He thinks that's what it is to think that people are responsible. And doing that neither needs to be nor could be shown to be justified or unjustified, even though there's some cases in which we don't do that. But those cases have to be the exception. So, because this comes out in the in the book, is so is the idea that just like you're saying, like you might think that if we're going to interpret people as making assertions at all, we can't just assume that that they're all false. That would they're, they're somehow that wouldn't work out, or that's not possible. And so, similarly, if we're gonna if we were to be interacting with humans. And we think we're interacting with human beings, we're going to have to assume that they're in some way responsible so that so there's so there's no way we could if we it couldn't it couldn't be true that we discover some general truth and then all of a sudden real all stop uh, treating human beings as being responsible because it's just sort of built into the fact that we think we're interacting with human beings that we're going to treat them as to some degree responsible? Is it, is, is it, is that idea something like that? So there's two ideas. Um, one is, um, what he takes to be, I think just a basic brute fact about human beings, which is that, um, it, it matters to us how we figure into other people's worlds. So, um, so he's what he calls the quality of other people's wills towards us and towards others matters to us. And he, um, and he draws this out by, by pointing out that if someone um, steps on your hand accidentally, you're going to feel very differently about it than if they step on your hand on purpose out of malice or out of callous disregard for your existence. In the latter two cases, you're going to resent it. In the first case, you're, it's, I mean, the pain is going to be the same in both cases, but this, in addition to the pain they've caused you, there's this further thing, the quality of their will, how you figure into their world that matters to you. So like, I like to, to highlight this by saying there's a quote from uh, Justice Holmes that even a dog knows the difference between being tripped and being, um, being tripped over and being kicked. Right. So same injury, very different significance. So first point is, if you're a human being, you have this kind of sociability. It matters to you how you figure into other people's worlds. Second point, for any given society, if you have a group of human beings successfully living together as a society, uh, there's going to be, and he, this is something he says in a different paper, there's going to be some minimal set of rules that are mostly satisfied, some minimal set of expectations that, are, that people mostly live up to. So things like not killing one another, not lying, having some sense of property, right? Those are probably sort of minimal conditions um, for a society. And so you can make a little argument from a little kind of transcendental argument from the existence of a working society to the satisfaction, the actual fulfillment of a certain minimal set of rules. So from those two pieces, Sorry, let me connect those two pieces. So this minimal set of rules um, or expectations, Strassen thinks is the, it just is, or is the flip side, or is constituted by the way we react when people um, disappoint, our, disappoint them. So if you steal something from me, you've broken those rules, you've also treated me poorly. So you have a poor quality of will towards me. And he thinks my expectation that you not steal from me um, is just the same as my readiness to resent it when you do. 
So the expectation or demand and the proneness to what he calls a reactive attitude, like resentment or indignation, an attitude that's keyed to the quality of the other person's will, he, he identifies those. And then he thinks that any human society is going to have what he calls a framework of these expectations. So what it is, once you have any human society, he thinks you then know that there's some set of expectations and demands slash readiness to react with these attitudes that's, that's in place. And the existence of that framework, he thinks, is the thing that just comes with being human and being in society. There's no, there's no justifying it. There's no calling it, showing it to be unjustified. It's just a brute fact about us, um, that we care about one another and that we hold one another to certain, at least minimal expectations. But he notices um, there's sometimes when we stop holding one another to those demands. And so in the, in the essay, um, in the essay, in fact, he starts, he, he starts very generally saying, well, when are our reactive attitudes? When is our resentment, our indignation, our gratitude, our admiration, our responses to the quality of those of another's will? Under what conditions do those change? And he says, um, one condition under which they change is when we were mistaken. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't know that they didn't know. So with, we thought they were being malicious and they weren't. We thought they were being, showing us disregard, but in fact, we didn't have all the right information. So I put those under the slogan, the will wasn't ill. <laughs> we misperceived, we made a mistake. Another kind of case um, is a case in which it's not that we were mistaken about the quality of will that was shown. The person really did disregard us or show us malice. But for some or another reason, that person doesn't matter. And that, that person's will in that circumstance doesn't matter in quite the same way. So, yeah, he was being a jerk, but he was, you know, he was having a horrible day. The circumstances were terrible. He was under tremendous strain. Or, yeah, that was really selfish, but he's only three years old. Or, um, yeah, she did forget but she's suffering from dementia, you know, things, things like that, where, where um, the way I would put that is the ill will doesn't matter. So the first is uh, the, the will wasn't ill, we were mistaken. The second is we weren't mistaken, but for one or another reason, the will, poor quality of will doesn't matter. So now he thinks, now how could a general thesis affect us? Could a general thesis, like the truth of determinism, show that we were always mistaken about the quality of everybody's wills? He thinks, no, that's a, that would be super confusing. That would be the reign of universal goodwill, not the reign of universal good term, determinism. That would mean that nobody ever showed one other people goodwill, but or ill will, but that wouldn't be a consequence of the truth of determinism. Okay, now could it be the case that a general thesis would show that, that nobody's will really matters, that nobody, the quality of nobody's will actually matters? And that's the thing that it seems like it should show, right? That going back to your your intro class, right? It seems like, well, it doesn't matter anymore if, if, if determinism is true. So that seems like what's what should be the case. But then what Strawson says, is very surprising. What, what he says is, um, no, it's not going to show that um, because, quote, um, it cannot be a consequence of any thesis that is not itself self-contradictory that abnormality is the usual condition. So that's this little quote. And he says, now that's going to seem facile and it kind of is. And so everybody ignores it. But that's the argument. My interpretation is that's the art. That's the main idea. So what's the main idea there? The thought is the reason people's wills don't matter to us is, is because they're in some way outliers. 
Um, and it couldn't be the case that everyone's an outlier. So it couldn't be the case that, um, that a general thesis will show that we shouldn't um, treat everyone as though that, you know, that we shouldn't find the quality of other people's wills to matter. Yeah. And that, cause that, so, cause I get like, so it makes sense to me that you've got people who you discover, uh, you think they have ill will, but they really don't. And like you mentioned, maybe they're, uh, ignorant of what they're doing or various other cases. But then there are these cases where we say, like you mentioned children or someone with dementia or someone who's maybe drunk or whatever, various people say, well, look, they did it, definitely exhibiting ill will, but we're not going to hold them responsible. And we could grant what you were saying earlier that that's just shown in the fact that we don't have these reactive attitudes towards them. Maybe that's just what it means to say we're not going to hold them responsible. It does seem natural then for the person who's worried about determinism to think, well, yeah, so if you discover determinism is true, you should just treat everybody the way that we treat these outlier people. <laughs> so then you were saying to get his response to work, he, he seems to be saying that it's not just that we excuse these people who are just happen to fall into these categories for a disparate variety of reasons. It's not like that just we have some people who are children, other people have some other issue. There's a kind of unifying feature of all those people whose will we don't care about or whatever we don't we don't take into account. And it's that they're outliers in some sense. And then I can see if you got that claim then if you say, well, the reason these people are being exempted out of the system, out of our accountability system is they're outliers. Well, it can't be that everyone becomes an outlier. So then I guess the question is, what does he mean? Or so what, what would you say to sort of back up that claim that the feature of all these people that, that we should pick out, focus on to kind of make sense of us not holding them responsible is that they're, they're outliers. Cause that seems sort of, initially puzzling too. Right, right. No, so that's why I think this interpretation has gone un, unexplored despite the 60 years of intense um, attention to this article is because it just seems like a non-starter. Like how in the world could st the statistical uh, uh, distribution here have this kind of upshot? And the... So, so in the book, I try to do some work to kind of warm people up to, the, to, to this idea. Uh, one example that I give is to show that as our capacities change, um, we are going to change our responses to people. But it won't, but changing our responses to people as our capacities change won't necessarily be exempting. It might just be changing the, the expectations. So right now, I think that drunkenness can be one of these exempting conditions. And, and, and that by itself is interesting to think about, like under what conditions it's a temporary kind of thing, like, oh, you know, if it's one off uh, every few months, that's one thing. If it's every weekend, that's another thing. If it's if it's conceived of as alcoholism, that's different, and in in just ways that Strawson I think would would predict. But but generally, um, if someone says something really mean when you're um, out and they're drunk, we often just you know write it off like a, she was drunk. But if you Imagine a, an entire society of people who naturally, not because they're intoxicated, just because this is their natural endowment, who naturally have just the degree of impulse control and attention and memory that we have when we're pretty drunk. So to speak, from the outside, it might look just the same in the in the sense that people are not going to respond to certain outbursts or certain forgettings with resentment, but it wouldn't be because they've exempted all those people. It would be because the expectations have shifted. 
So the thought is that the that the the framework of expectations um, adjusts, it's sensitive, so to speak, to the facts on the ground. It's built, it's you know, built to fit in a way, whatever whatever we're normal. So 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 going back to the two points I was starting with, we're gonna care about the quality of others' wills. And we're going to have some set of expectations and the minimum set is going to mostly be satisfied. Well, how, how, why, why, how could the minimum set mostly be satisfied? Well, because it's going to adjust to whatever is true. But then the thought is, um, it needn't adjust in a way it's going to adjust to whatever is true, but, but so to speak to the, to the median or to the, you know, um, so, so at the tails, you're going to have people who, um, are going to be largely unable to satisfy these expectations. And rather than exhaust ourselves in them by getting upset about it, we, we just call it off. We just exempt. But from Strassen's point of view, we do that just because continuing in this normal way is sort of not tolerably possible. It's not workable, right? There's something about these cases where it's, it's become unworkable, but it's not, it, it's the unworkability that makes it, that calls for exemption. It's not that there's some condition that makes continuing to interact with them somehow morally illicit. It's the unworkability that comes first. Well, that brings up another thing because you have this concept in the book of who's capable of, of ordinary human interactions. The idea is that there's some basic capacities for human interaction. I guess our sense of what we, what we, what we're going to count as the capacities for our interaction are going to depend on what people are like. Is that, I mean, so one thing you gave the example of if everyone has capacities that we think of as only people who are really drunk, have, they have certain limits to their memory or something. Well, what would be counted as ordinary yes. human interaction for people like that would be different than That's what counts as ordinary idea. human interaction <laughs> for people like us who have better memories, but we still aren't. Yeah, we have other defects uh, or limitations. So is his thought that, I mean, look, if we discover some general fact that's true about all, all of us, it has to have been true about of us all along. But we can't, we can't discover that people weren't capable of ordinary human interactions because that's what we've been doing all along. And so there's this, there's some way in which our practice of engaging in ordinary human interaction just presupposes that people have whatever capacities you need to have for it to make sense for you to be held accountable or something like that. I mean, it presupposes in the sense that depends on. Right. I mean, it's it, it, like, it, like there's, it's already been priced in or something. Right. Um, so, um, yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, so this, this doesn't come up in the book and it's a little bit, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit orthogonal to the argument of the book. But, um, but when I teach the class, um, sometimes I talk about humor. So you might think that, Okay. So, 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 so humor seems to be a kind of human practice. It's hard to say exactly what the rules are. So it's a little bit like morality in that way, but it seems clear that some things are funny and some things aren't funny. So it seems like morality in that way too. And uh, so let's pick something and just stipulate that we're in agreement that it's funny. So like particular episode of Seinfeld, say, let's just say that everybody agrees that that's the jokes there are super funny. But then suppose we were to learn that behind the scenes, every time Seinfeld was ever filmed, young children were being tortured. That would be terrible. And you might then think it's not appropriate to laugh when you see the episode. It wouldn't make it not funny, but it would seem like, okay, we, we shouldn't laugh anymore. Okay. So now imagine that somebody says, well, look, I mean, just think about 
how the world is. Think about all of the incredible pain and needless suffering in this world. I mean, there, there are burn victims, there are earthquakes, there's needless wars, there's people who, who are treated cruelly. The world is full of pain and suffering. And in that light, has ever, anything ever really been funny? And there's something really tempting about that. Right? There's something really kind of tempting, but I think the right answer is to kind of shake your head and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. no, <laughs> we know what funny is. Funny grew up right here in this world of pain and suffering. And, uh, and the fact that there's all kinds of pain and suffering doesn't show that, you know, this or that thing wasn't funny. Um, and I think there's a, like I said, that, that it's a little orthogonal to the arguments of the book, so it doesn't show up in the book. But, but there's something of that in Strawson's idea that whatever our expectations are uh, that we place on one another, they grew up right here. Um, they already take into account whatever the limitations are that we're under. Um, so, you know, the fact that we aren't capable of co contracausal um, agency <laughs> Uh, that doesn't undermine the appropriate, the quote unquote appropriateness of those expectations. Um, they're, they're still in place. And if, and if they, um, if it turns out that we come to have less capacities, they will change. But learning that determinism is true is not learning that we never had the capacities required to satisfy them. Because we've been satisfying them all along. That's the thought. Yeah, because this that's I oh, know I like that humor case because that's no, that's a really good uh <laughs> analogy. But I guess I mean so this brings up in the book you I mean, so there's also one one if distinction that comes up in the book is, you know, what would we do if we discovered determinism is true? And there's what should we do? And in particular, there's this character, the pessimist, who's arguing that morally speaking, we should stop holding people responsible. So I guess I was thinking when I hear the stuff you're saying, it seems plausible to me, like the humor example is helpful where I think, okay, look, we hold people responsible, brought out ways, maybe the contours of who gets held responsible varies either based on people's actual capacities being different or could be what people take to be people's capacities, you know, who we're going to exempt or not. But it looks like the way we grow up, and then you might think social, so you might think psychologically, developmentally, and socially, we just start holding people responsible. And then the thing that triggers that is our, is the, the supposition that, or the kind of tacit awareness or whatever it is that the person's capable of a certain type of normal interaction. And then we can say, yeah, little kids who are one are not capable of that kind of interaction yet. And that's why we don't, that's why we exempt them with people with dementia. And so there, so if we could spell out, you know, maybe it would be hard to spell out exactly what those capacities for uh, ordinary interaction are in one context. But I could see why if I thought that's what, that's how I sort of started holding people responsible. And that's how we start holding people responsible. I could see, well, okay, just about if we discover determinism is true, we're probably going to still keep holding all the people responsible who have who we who we take to have the capacities for an ordinary interaction. So it's the same way. I'm going to keep laughing at stuff that has certain features, but then you can get this worry. Well, but then that's really bad. So it's true that we this might establish that we won't or maybe can't get rid of this the tendency to hold people responsible. And that's rooted in our natural, our kind of natural sociality. But you could think, yeah, and that's really, that just goes to show we're morally rotten. And I, so I still do sort of get the grip of that. And so I wanted to get into how you, you raise that and you respond to that, but that's, I, I definitely feel the pull of that. Like, you know, look, if we don't have free will, then it's like, 
oh, well, if we're, if we're, if everything's determined, we're sure I'm, I'm probably going to lapse into holding, you know, so it's like Hume, like when I go back out and play billiards, I'm going to start making all kinds of assumptions again. So I'm curious to move into that part of the book and, and that part of the argument. Good. Right. So, so one interpretation, one standard interpretation is just like you that, um, where people think, oh, all Strawson is saying is that, uh, we can't help but hold people responsible. And so we will. And so we should just, you know, stop worrying about it. And he does have some, uh, sympathy with that, but I don't think that's a good interpretation of what he's up to, uh, ex except insofar as it motivates this broader thing that I'll call his social, that he calls his social naturalism. And then another way that people interpret him is closer to the humor thing, which is as saying, um, that it's a kind of broadly Wittgensteinian point as saying that, um, it's just a confusion to think that you can criticize an entire practice like holding responsible using terms that owe their meaning to that practice. So the, the objection you were just raising, I take it, is something like, well, if determinism is true, like we're morally horrible to keep holding one another responsible. I mean, maybe we do, but it's really unfair and unjust to keep doing that. So the, the Wittgensteinian argument says, whoa, 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 wait. Unfair and unjust, those are terms that owe their meaning to morality as we practice it. So it would be like talking about fair and foul inside of baseball. So you can, you know, we can talk about which balls are foul and which, um, which attempts at um, which, which parts of the territory of, of the field are, are foul. But you can't ask of baseball itself, is the game of baseball foul? Just doesn't make any, in the sense that it requires that the, the, the balls in parts of the field are. So that's a confusion. So that's the other way that people interpret him. And again, I think that thought is in there, but he's, he's, he's doing something more than that. And the thought is that it's again the thought that what he sees himself to be doing is dis is unearthing facts about our practice that such that our practice couldn't be illegitimate. Right. So the the practice it's not not the specifics of it, not like the actual way we do things, say in the U.S. or the way they did things in, you know, 13th century China or something, not the specifics of it, but the general fact that we care about one another and that we have some or another expectations, that very broad fact, um, he thinks, couldn't be illegitimate. And so it, and it sorry, it not only couldn't be illegitimate, it also couldn't fail to be in good working order. So, uh, and, and, and that's a part that I think is actually interesting and, and puzzling, right? So at the very end of the book, I bring up what I think is the best objection to Strawson, um, which is, um, wait, 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 wait. Uh, sure. Fine. I agree with you that, um, that our practices are constituted by our own activities, but we're mistaken about a bunch of stuff. And one of the things that we've been mistaken about is whether we're free. And so our practices have built into them this illegitimate um, assumption, this false belief that, we, that we're free in a way that we aren't. So for that, I I, I generate a, an analogy. So, so the analogy is, um, again, with baseball. So imagine there's a game called baseball in a nearby possible world that's an awful lot like baseball here, except for there, they have a, a, an official explicit rule book. And in that official explicit rule book, they stipulate that anytime performance enhancing drugs are used, that game is to be wiped from the records. So wins and losses, no wins and losses, no stats, nothing. And in that rule book, it states that 
and any substance that improves performance at the long-term cost of player health is a performance enhancing drug. Then they come to learn in this world that uh, chewing tobacco satisfies the definition of performance enhancing drug. And every game that's ever been played, somebody has been using chewing tobacco. So that's supposed to be like analogous to our situation. If we for centuries have thought of ourselves as free spirits inhabiting a material world, able to act upon it without being um, acted on, right? Free in this strong way. Um, and then we come and, and, and we built our game. We built morality around that. And then we come to learn that we're not that, right? Now it seems like we're in the same sort of situation as coming to see that uh, chewing tobacco, a performance enhancing drug was, was in use for every single game. So the thought is um, the pessimist has one specific response to that, and which is to think, oh my God, no game has ever really been played. We have never really been playing baseball. Strawson has a very different response to that. And it's a little weird. His response is, oh, see, in learning that uh, chewing tobacco has been in use in every game, what we learned is that we were wrong about our definition of performance enhancing drug. It can't be the case that chewing tobacco is a performance enhancing drug because this game is guaranteed to be playable. So what we have to, so, so, so we learned not only that we were um, mistaken about chewing tobacco, but also that we were mistaken about our own rules. We just, we, we, we just said them wrong, right? <laughs> like, and if we pay more attention to what we've actually been doing, we can get a better, we can get a better articulation of our rules. So that's the Stra Strawson's answer. It's, it's uh, I think of that as his descriptive descriptive metaphysics. That's what I mean when I say he's trying to like discover carefully the truth of of what's going on with a lot of confidence. It's going to hold up. There's an in between approach that is more attractive to me, which is to think, no, this is a crisis. <laughs> We've hit a crisis. <laughs> But this is kind of an existentialist move. But, but there's nothing to say in advance that we have to go one way or the other on this, right? So, so we don't have to, with the pessimist, think, oh, my God, there's never been a baseball game. We might, but we don't have to. Uh, we don't have to go with Strawson and say that things have, uh, we've just been mistaken. I mean, we could do something weird and gruish, like, well, up until now, there have been no games. Or up until now, uh, the rules were one way. And from here on out, the rules will be a different way. But, but it's open to us. And we just have to do the best we can and figure out what's next. So th that's a different way of responding to the pessimist's um, challenge. So the pessimist is saying, like, We've discovered that we there's that the right answer has to be you know like in the baseball analogy there have been no baseball games and there's some kind of imperative to do that. So, I mean, so would the analogy be like uh, basically the pessimists? Yeah, they're going to think uh, no one's ever been legitimately held responsible in the past. That's it. Right. That's right. Because to be responsible, you have to be able to be countercausally free and determinism shows that we're not that. And so this whole game is off. No, we're that, you know, like if you, if you, if you think that, then when you notice what, then, then basically, no, uh, you were wrong to think that that's built into, that there's, there's any, there's any moral, there's anything kind of immoral thinking or our moral practice that could support the claim that moral, a whole heap of responsible has a condition that requires freedom. So that's, I mean, he, he's just sort of saying there's no argument that you could give that would, that would establish that this is a presupposition of more of valid moral accountability. Cause that seems like, I mean, I don't know how he, I mean, like it just, you know, that would be this kind of bold skeptical claim, basically. Right. 
Yeah. So he doesn't want to say that. And I think he's a little, uh, I think he's a little less forthcoming than he could be uh, in the article about how revisionist this picture might end up seeming to other people. But he's, he's convinced it's the opposite of revisionary, right? He's thinking that it's the Christian or the metaphysician, the non-descriptive metaphysician, who has, who has put this kind of accretion on reality, has, has sort of added things that aren't really, part, aren't really there as part of a th- sort of theoretical overlay. And so he is, with his sort of careful archaeological chisel and brush, tr- trying to clear away this accretion and show us the, um, the, the well-functioning um, reality that is our way of living with one another. So, so yeah, do you think, I mean, is this a fair way of thinking about his argument could be something like, look, there is this social practice of morality. And so if you take an intro to philosophy course, a lot of times people, they sort of talk about morality in a way that doesn't really connect up with the fact that it is a social anthropological phenomenon. But if you focus on that, and then you say, well, okay, we can give an account, a naturalistic account of what morality is. And part of morality uh, as this social practice that, you know, you could learn about in an anthropology class or a psychology class is this stuff about holding responsible. And he's talked about that. And if that's what you're talking about, there's nothing in that phenomenon of kind of like lived morality that is going to justify the claim that uh, accountability is legitimate only if it, if only if we have free will. So you might think people who say stuff like that, they're not really taught when they say morality uh, requires that we have free will, if we're going to be justifiably held accountable, what are they talking about? What are they referring to when they say morality? They're, they're probably not talking about the actual, they're not talking about the social process in the real world. It's some kind of like a theoretical idea. I mean, so I don't know, is that, is that sort of the idea? I mean, because what you were saying just now about the accretion, that's, I was sort of thinking maybe it's like, yeah, they're sitting in some room and they're trying to just, they, they think there's this thing, morality, and it's whatever it is, it's like a law in the sky or so it's, it's not the social practice. And he's saying, look, morality just is this social practice. Good. So what, so what you're bringing out brings out what I think of as the other b- biggest challenge of this picture, um, uh, and, and probably of the bigger challenge than the, um, than the one I just stated, which is that it looks like it's going to end up being um, either a merely descriptive story, um, so all we're doing is anthropology, or it's going to look really objectionably relativistic, that, um, that whatever is going on on the ground in a particular place is the, the right way it should be. And so Strassen doesn't do anything to himself to meet those challenges. I spent this, that's the, that's the bulk of the last chapter of, of the book is me attempting to say that I think there's something to be said to meet those challenges, but without going into what might be said, try, just trying to get right the kind of claim he means to be making so it's not just a descriptivist claim. It's not just this is the anthropology. He he means it to be. He means to be described. I mean, his 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 analogy is always with epistemology or w- with our with our ability to reason and do science, right? So so there, he, I mean, he says he talks about induction, right? Reasoning from fu- from past to future, 
And again, Hume pointed out, like, how could this possibly be justified? You can't justify it by appeal to the fact that it's always worked. Um, so it seems like we're screwed. And Strassel wants to say of that, that's the way we think. That's what it is to think. That's the way we think. It's not to be justified or unjustified. There's a general framework within which we have to operate. But that doesn't mean that with inside that framework, there aren't rules and things that are better and worse, right? And, and, and even things that we can all get wrong, like um, the gambler's fallacy or things like confirmation bias uh, can be widespread. And we can also sort of improve the practice itself from within. The only thing he thinks that we can't do is upend the whole thing, get rid of the whole thing. And so if something has showed, seems to show that we have to get rid of the whole thing, that's reason to think it's a mistake. That's, so, so there's a kind of status this thing has that he thinks from the beginning means that it's not going to be internally incoherent. And if you find an incoherence, that's a reason to think there's a mistake somewhere and you got to go fix it. So when we adopted a metaphysics of the soul that made us think that um, we are independent of the physical world. And then Newton showed us that the physical world is all tied up so that if we were souls, we would have no input into it. And then we thought, holy crap, we, we can't do anything here. How can we be held responsible? It starts to look like we've got a, an internal inconsistency because we think we're responsible, but we can't be responsible, conditions can't be satisfied. We're, and we're exempting some people because they couldn't have done otherwise, but none of us could have done otherwise, right? So we end up with these assorted inconsistencies and Strassen thinks, oh, that just shows you that there's a mistake somewhere. You got to go back and fix it. You got to go back and revise. Uh, and the mistake was in thinking that what you needed to be responsible was to be able to do otherwise in this strong contracausal sense. What you needed was to be able to do otherwise well enough to engage in ordinary interpersonal relationships, um, which of course we all do. So, so that's the that's the naturalism. That's this this idea that that there's a there's a thing that we have going for us that takes precedence, so to speak, like doesn't need to be justified and can't be shown unjustified. And so if we end up with a contradiction, we just have to, we can't throw the whole thing out. We have to go fix fix the contradiction somewhere. And so that's a little bit different than what I was calling the existentialist response. Oh yeah, we might end up in contradiction, but at that point, nothing tells us we have to go one way or the other. We just have to, you know, do our best. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so that's, I mean, cause one thing about that idea that like, if we just, if we think if it seems to us, like we're, we've reached some point where, there's this contradiction where holding people responsible, but then we've discovered we shouldn't. We must have made a mistake somewhere. And so that's where he thinks uh, there, there's this natural fact about the way we're, we've been going on so far and then we're going to keep going on. And so that's not really something we that's up for justification. Um, so that's sort of outside the realm of... Uh, you know, like we don't we, questions of justification don't make sense or something like that. We we try to ask them about it. Yeah, that they have the status of the sort of hinge propositions, or whatever you, whatever we want to call them in 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 Wittgenstein. Right. So I got one thing I thought I'd ask, like kind of around this point of the conversation or whatever I wanted to ask was, what would he say about? So there are these hard determinists, like Paraboom is one, but there are other people that. You know, they think roughly there is this inconsistency and uh, we do need to change things. And then one thing they'll say, uh, so Perum's done a bunch of stuff of this, but there are people who work on Buddhism too who, who write about this and they say, oh, well, maybe what we need to do is they think we need to, we shouldn't feel resentment anymore or guilt, but then they think we still should feel 
we can still feel sad when people are up, you know, there's some of them. So basically they think there's some reactions that are natural that are kind of imply or they presuppose that people do have free will. And then there are these other ones that don't. And so they think, uh, well, it is, there's this possibility. There's a live option even <laughs> that maybe we could transform our, our personalities and our culture so that that would be a way to get rid of the contradiction really would be if you think there's a part of our practice that is ultimately leading this contradict contradictory issue and we could if we could kind of eliminate that but we could keep this other one so is that so when you're saying like I, you're saying Strawson thinks that's not that that we can't do that and we shouldn't think we could even we would even need to justify not doing that or something but then your existentialist view is that that would be an option or is it, how does that fit into this yeah no 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 okay. no so the um there's a way in which strassen is silent on the paraboom style suggestion right if par if you think of paraboom as saying well, these particular sets of attitudes, they're no good, but we should really be going for these other ones. The freedom and resentment, as I read it, is not asking about that. It's not asking about the particular, you know, thing we, the thing that was done in mid-century England or thing, the thing that was done in 21st century America or that was done in 13th century China or something, right? Like it, it it's asking at a much more formal level, <laughs> any, su any such framework. Um, the so, so the thought is that determinism, Strawson sees the threat of determinism as a threat against any such framework, a threat against taking the quality of other people's wills to matter in this distinctive way. That's the thing that he thinks can't so if Paraboom is thinking, well, because of this, be, that, that, that certain assumptions are connected with certain reactions and they have built into them uh, a false presumption about determinism, so we should give those up, that much I think should be pretty uh, friendly to Strawson. So, uh, and so then the, dis then the disagreement is going to be about how extensive that infection with false assumptions um, this, thing this is. So, so Paraboom thinks it's pretty extensive. I tend to think, I mean, this isn't in the book, but it's a thing I say elsewhere. I, so I tend to think that, that, for example, some of the disagreement in this literature is is because people actually ha have followed. So following Strauss, and there's a huge literature that makes use of the reactive attitudes. And I think some of the disagreement in that literature is because there's actually people mean different things by, by things like resentment. So I've started talking about resentment plus and resentment minus. So resentment plus um, might be what Paraboom has in mind, right? So it has built right into the attitude, right into the thought, um, not only you've disrespected me, you've disregarded my value as a human being, but you've disregarded my value as a human being. And if you had paid attention and tried a little harder, you could have avoided it. So now if the attitude has that built right into it, then it better be the case that if you had paid attention and tried a little harder, you could have avoided it. And if paying attention and trying hard, if the could have avoided it, right, is a could that is shown to be false by the truth of determinism, then it's going to turn out that that attitude, so there's two steps there. One is the could have avoided and the other is the particular interpretation of could. But if you follow both of those steps, then that attitude of resentment plus is going to never be appropriate. Fine. Here's a different thing, resentment minus. All it says is, I matter and you treated me poorly. doesn't say a thing about what you could have done otherwise. That doesn't require any revision. 
Now, if I resent somebody and they think that, you know, there's a possibility for miscommunication here, right? <laughs> there's a, or a mis, misunderstanding. It's not really communication. It's a possibility for misunderstanding. Um, if somebody who is the target of my resentment minus interprets it as resentment plus and feels they couldn't have done otherwise, they're going to be all upset about that. They're going to think I'm an, I'm mistaken, whereas I'm just going to think no. What I'm what what I'm reacting to is the fact that I matter and you treated me like I didn't. End of story. No, that's okay. That's super helpful because I think that brings out to me that so the so Strawson's the person he's worried about the pessimist he's worried about is saying not just okay it's morally wrong to hold people accountable if we don't have free will. And they're thinking of a specific idea of what morally accountable is. That's you might be familiar with if you've read contemporary moral philosophy. Uh, it's a much broader, it's just any system of, like you're saying, like basically if you have a set of expectations for how people treat you and if they, fail to do that in a way that manifests uh, bad will. And that doesn't mean bad free will. It just means some more broad notion of purposiveness or something. And I'm not figuring into your world in the way I think I should figure into your world. Yeah. And so that the pessimist is saying, if there's no, if determinism is true, we should eliminate all of that. Um, so that's good because it sort of brings out it's a it's a much stronger uh, revision of our current practice than yeah the people who just target what you might think of as distinctively moral reactive attitudes or some people some people refer to that but like I like what you're saying that and you could do the same thing you do with with resentment with the, like guilt. Presumably, some people think guilt involves this thought I could have done otherwise. Well, then there's, you know, maybe Oedipus felt guilty or something, you know, <laughs> whatever. So we could have guilt minus too. And so the point that I, that, yeah, that's good here is that the pessimist is targeting all right. of that. Right. The whole, and, 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 and really thinking that, you know, if, if determinism is true, it's, it's not just that we, should be a little kinder and gentler, right? Um, it's that we should stop engaging in holding people responsible at all, which Strassen hears as, and I think probably correctly hears as, you know, we should give up having these expectations on the quality of one another's wills. And that's, I think, very, uh, so I've finished a paper for the big book. It's a chapter in the big book I'm working on, but it's going to come out in a different volume first, uh, called um, Fairness, Sanction, and Condemnation. And there I'm trying to puzzle about what someone like Dirk Paraboom has in mind when they say basic dessert. So, he, you know, he thinks that if, if determinism is true, there is no such thing as basic dessert, and therefore our, our ideas of morality have to really change quite significantly. And I have never really understood what people mean by basic dessert. Um, and so in this paper, I go through a kind of elaborate uh, set of reflections, and I come up with a, a thing I think I think might be what people have in mind. So I, I kind of satisfied my own puzzlement. We'll see whether anybody else agrees with me. But uh, but it's a um, the thought is that there's a there's a kind of status that I call condemnation that I think does require. I think I can make sense of why a status that I would call that that I explain there and call condemnation does require a very strong form of freedom. That, that we don't have. And therefore, we're going to have to give up on condemnation. So that's revisionary and a little bit like the way Paraboom wants to re be revisionary. I, I just think that giving up on condemnation is much less far-reaching in our ordinary life than someone like Paraboom thinks it is. And I, and I think 
And I think Strassen would be happy to think, okay, yeah, maybe there are some of these accretions, what I was calling accretions, on our practices that grew up from bad metaphysics. What he's just a little less forthright about is saying, yeah, that is part of our practice. And yeah, we do have to adjust, right? He, he, he just is a little bit you know, bold or something about thinking like, that's not our practice. Our practice is the real thing, the true thing, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this really is something we do too. Um, but, but he's going to think, no, that's, there's a quote he makes somewhere else that, that puts this point really nicely that, that I, that I have a footnote in the, in the book where th this point about, well, we have to pick which things we're going to call, you know, part of our practice. And because I think in the book, you had an example of it's like if you blame uh, people for mistreating you in your personal life, it's not, it doesn't seem like it necessarily has all these presuppositions built into it. Um, but, um, all right, well, I guess, uh, I don't know. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the objection you raise to the social naturalism, whether it can accommodate the fact that our normal kind of social practice of morality does involve uh, positing ideals that we don't really think anyone can live up to yet. So, or we don't, or are we statistically, we don't think they will. Yeah, okay. But so, can I let me pause because I found the quote. Um, so uh, here's what he says. Uh, this is Strassen. He says, there's a quite general ambiguity in the notion of, quote, our ordinary concept, quote, of whatever it may be. Quite general ambiguity in the notion of our ordinary concept. Should the lineaments of such a concept be drawn from its use, from our ordinary practice? Or should we add the reflective accretions, however confused, which naturally or historically gather round it? The distinction is hardly clear cut, but where it can be made, I prefer the first alternative. So, um, so, so I take it that he's going to think that the, the sorts of um, presuppositions or the, the ideas that have come with the idea of being a, um, an immaterial soul, captaining a material ship in a um, natural world, but, but that is a reflective accretion, however confused, that has gathered around our practice of morality, and that our ordinary concept should be identified not with it, but with the what he's calling the actual practice, which again, there's I think the same ambiguity is going to show up there, but um, but but that's the that's the idea. But you wouldn't prioritize. I mean, because if you look at the actual practice, and you might say parts of the practice are the things that have been uh, overemphasized by the theoretical accretions. So you might mean that might be in this case, we could say, well, maybe our ordinary practice of morality, some of our some part of it doesn't imply that the people we're holding accountable have free will. This other part does. And that other part is the part that people have, you know, blown out of proportion when they do the theory. Right. But he, but that's what I'm saying. He's not quite front about. He, 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 he holds on to the idea of practice as the thing that is pure. And then there's the accretions. And then, then his question is now the concept, should the concept go with the accretions or with the practice? And he's like, oh, with the practice. Mm -hmm. But, but there's a, the, but there's a kind of, no, the practice is going to hold up, you know, which is what the existentialist in allowing for genuine crisis is, is not going to, um, is not going to go for. Well, that might get at something because you're thinking, it sounds like you, it's almost sounds there like, uh, that quote, and then the way you were talking about it, it's that it, you might think Strawson's picture is there's this thing, the ordinary practice, and then there are these theoretical accretions over here, or like, you know, religious and other, you know, <laughs> cultural accretions. That, and we could just look, if we just looked at the practice, it wouldn't have any kind of internal problems in it that would lead, and so the problems arise when you get these, you know, accretions coming in. 
Um, and but your view that this idea of a more existentialist view it sounds like part of it is that you think there might just be features of the practice that themselves are lending themselves to the worries. Uh, and so that so there's a kind of inherent tension in there. Right. That the practice itself could be incoherent. And and at that point, when we notice that, that's what I was calling a crisis. Now we have a crisis moment, but the crisis moment doesn't require us to go with the pessimist any more than it requires us to go with Strauss. And it just requires us to, to fix something right? and to figure out the right way to go on or sorry. The, and, and the problem, the reason it's a crisis is that there's nothing to specify the right way to go on. And yet we have to do the best we can. Yeah, and like we might decide resentment plus is unjustified, so we're gonna try to not feel that, or if we do, whatever you know, some way of apologize when we feel it or something. But then, well, so that yeah. doesn't that doesn't seem. I don't think that's the crisis point. I mean, that's just um, that's just finding an internal revision, right? The crisis is the thing the pessimist thinks we're going to hit, where where the whole thing's got to go. So the, the, if the generalization strategy, what I call in the book, the generalization strategy, if that succeeds, now we're in crisis. Let's see. Well, we've gone an hour, so maybe we should wrap up here. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, I, this is a lot of fun. And yeah, I thought we it came up at the end of this, but you have another book in the works on 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 free will too so that's going to be exciting when that comes out and uh no i was like now i'm intrigued about this paper you mentioned about <laughs> that one's on my Paraboom. website yeah well oh, it, it? It, it's oh, cool. uh it's not really about paraboom but it's a it's about this idea of basic dessert <laughs> the idea or, of basic dessert yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 cool all right well thanks so much for coming on uh it was a lot of fun to talk to you yeah thank you <laughs>